0: Last week, Pastor Andy began us down a series called The Meaning of the Cross, which in these weeks leading up to Easter is a good thing to consider, right? Uh, The cross as our eternal form of salvation is where Andy began us last week. And um, as we kind of pursue these tenets of our faith— our orthodoxy, the things that we believe and that we say as followers of Christ, it finds us in attention at times because, you know, our culture, the way we see the church moving, even the way we read scripture, if we don't consider those things carefully in light of the cross and the work that Jesus did with God and the Holy Spirit and taking death head on, defeating sin and death, through resurrection, giving us hope for eternal life, we might kind of start charging down one path only to find Christ is leading us down a different path. You know, as Andy let me know the topic for this week, and he doesn't dictate what we preach, but he said, here's the topic that I had on hand. Would you like to take it? And the topic was enduring model of discipleship. The cross and what it means in our the enduring model of discipleship i was stoked because this is right up my alley for those who you who don't know my name is daniel and i'm the pastor of worship and liturgy here at emmaus uh, ordained with the church and i've always felt a strong desire to be actively involved in god's work in the church but in very practical ways And that's because I've been the beneficiary of so many who have poured into my life in this way. Worship leaders, life group leaders, disciple makers. And while I enjoy preaching, I've always kind of felt this desire, this satisfaction when coming alongside of you, when coming alongside of our staff here at Emmaus giving shape and direction to the way that God's leading, especially through Pastor Andy. You know, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the responsive readings, all of those things work together to shape us. The resources that we have, the booklet that's leading us through Lent, the uh, life group questions, and of course, Pastor Rick does a great job of helping form those as well, prayers of the people. All this to say, the idea of speaking discipleship was really exciting to me. And then as I started like, getting into this and digging into the scripture for today, I started getting a little nervous. <laughs> um, I started feeling a little bit of attention. Because as I was reminding myself of what Christ did in those moments, those final days around the cross... I was acutely reminded that following Jesus' footsteps can be really hard. And perhaps at times it can feel seemingly impossible. Like, there's no way I can do that. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Rick was teaching about um, the transfiguration and we see this scene of Jesus and a couple of his disciples on the mountain and there's Moses and Elijah flanking Jesus in like the mist and sparkles and uh, the moment must have been awesome. And Peter did probably what I would have done, maybe what you would have done. He pipes in with this great idea, Jesus, this is awesome. Let's build some shelters and you guys can just hang out here Uh, It'll be great. He's probably already thinking of like the buddies down the mountain who aren't here. Like I can go get them and bring them up and they can see Jesus with Elijah and Moses and the revelation. You know, maybe he's thinking about like the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders who are hot on Jesus' feet, wanting to crucify him, wanting to shut him up because they doubt who he is. But if they could just see Jesus here with Moses and Elijah, it'd solve everything. You know, Peter is jumping to this idea, but it's his idea. Before he could get his plan unfolded, uh, the voice of God rolls in. The disciples fall to their feet. And when they look up, Jesus is there alone, instructing them not to tell anybody what they saw or heard. Like Peter, I hear the word discipleship and I get excited because I've got ideas about that. I've got ideas on what we could do. But sometimes when we jump to conclusions, we find that Jesus is slowly leading us in a different direction. So today, as we investigate what the crucified and resurrected Savior means in regards to how we, as his followers, model our actions and our words, be ready. We're going to have some tension. We're going to feel it, and that's okay. Uh, We might even discover that our traditions, our culture, our ingrained models of saying and doing things, have been marching down one path only to find Jesus leading down another. So is everyone appropriately nervous alongside me today? <laughs> it's okay. Uh, we'll be in scripture, so hopefully we'll steer, steer clear of heresy here. It's going to be a good morning. Thank you for being with us. Let me pray for us as we, uh, before we dive into scripture. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, so feel free to open your Bibles. Your devices, it'll be on the screens for you. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Then Jesus went on with his disciples to the towns, the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But then he asked him, but who do you say that I am? Our guy Peter, he's going to be popping up a lot today. Our guy Peter chimes in and he says, you are the Messiah. And I imagine Jesus kind of had this satisfied, happy look on his face. But he sternly looked at Peter and he said, Don't tell anyone about who I am. Then he began to teach them that the Son of God, the Son of Man, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and to be killed and after three days raised again. He said this all quite openly, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd of disciples who were with him, and he called them around him, and he said, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and for those, and those who, want to, who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. He called the disciples around him and he said, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. You know, I, I like the character Peter so much because I can identify with him really well. I think the church likes Peter because I think we can identify with him the American church, how often do we sound like Peter? You know, one moment, we're nailing it. In verse 29, unlike, you know, when everyone else was not getting it, Peter said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, yeah. Only three verses later to just fall on our face to rebuke Jesus and to be corrected by him in a public and profound way. You know, this passage holds the answer to our question, what does the cr- cross say about the meaning, lasting model of discipleship? If anyone wants to become my, dis- my followers, let them deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. But I think we need to kind of do some work at... Um, kind of diving into what Jesus is asking here. You know, because to his followers, that statement must have implied something that to us, it's different to us. We're 2,000 years removed. To them, they are before the events of the cross and the resurrection. To them, they're hearing Jesus say, if you want to be my follower, forget your ideas of how this revolution's going to work. Forget the idea that I'm gonna come in and like lay Rome down and bring my kingdom in and we're all gonna be mighty and rule together. He's saying, forget about that. Humble yourself and follow me to be put to death. To them, the cross, you know, we hear the word cross and we think that, you know, it kind of has these nice Christian notions of being humble, being self-sacrificing, being giving and compassionate to others, you know, as Christ was to us. That's what the cross means to us. But to them, the cross was a brutal form of execution. Take up your electric chair and follow me. They had one way of thinking about how God was going to accomplish his goals. Peter likely was telling Jesus, you can't be crucified, you can't be put to death, because how are we gonna receive the promises that the Lord promised to us? God didn't promise that we would live under occupation of Rome. God promised us a promised land to be free people. Peter had an idea of how it should work, and Jesus said, that's not how it's gonna work. You're thinking of human things, not divine things. You know, this idea that there's two models of how God's work could be accomplished is what we're going to be looking at. And, you know, these aren't new ideas. Uh, They were existing at the time of Peter. They existed for the early fathers. Martin Luther in the 1600s helped organize this thinking, this distinction, but these weren't even new ideas for Luther, but he's provided us language that I think is going to help us today. When looking at scripture and the life of Christ, there appear two models for accomplishing the work of God. The first, the way of glory, the way of self-reliance, the way of dominance. And the second, the way of the cross. To simplify what Luther's saying, the way of glory means working through human will, human ideas human power to accomplish the work of god but the way of the cross is looking at the grace of god what he has accomplished and allowing that to guide the ways we work to be consistent with the way jesus lived so is that clear the way of glory human will human means human power the way of the cross self-sacrifice, humility, obedience, trust, courage. Let's investigate these a little bit. Ian, I've got another slide. Go to the next slide. This will help us. Lutheran theologian Gerald Ford said it like this, the hallmark of the theology of glory is that It will always consider grace as something supplemental to whatever is left of human will and human power. Like Peter on the Holy Mountain of Transfiguration, it leaps to an idea of building shelters rather than being transformed by the revelation of who Jesus is. For better or for worse, the complicated nature of Scripture. sometimes can confuse us on this. We read all kinds of descriptions of how God worked and accomplished his means, especially in the Old Testament. But if we're not constantly filtering those stories and those, those recounts of history through the cross, we can get in danger of saying that, no, God works like this. It was in scripture. It's like clear. If I want to accomplish something, Maybe i should take up my sword and go take it but jesus shows us a different way you know consider the many ways that we the modern church have adopted human power maybe even using the metaphor of the sword to accomplish its means you know it's safe to say that Every human war in history has a one party feeling like God entitled them to something that someone else possessed, and that bloodshed of the innocent was or is a small price to pay for taking what God's promised. Of course, we see the most exaggerated version of this in regards to the church through the Crusades. You know, systems that prop up the powerful and privileged at the expense of the poor and the weak are not the way of God, they're the way of glory. I asked Andy whether I should make some of these uh, descriptions explicit, and he said, whatever you think. (laughs) Think of the ways the American church has propped up both sides of our political party system, in ways to accomplish what seemed to be the right way. And sometimes they're great. Sometimes we can rally behind that as the church, as followers of Christ. But sometimes we have to recognize, you know, that just doesn't sound and feel like Jesus. Author Tulian Cheshavan says it this way in the, in the theology of glory, life becomes a ladder, one rung brings you a step closer to the top, but it's always just out of sight. And as we tell ourselves this story, we simplify God's existence simply to our own benefit, our happiness, our self-fulfillment, our personal transformation. And while those things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, God isn't necessarily opposed to them, But God in Christ cannot be reduced to a way to our own personal ends. He is the end himself. Christ is imploring us that the way of the cross, the one of self-sacrifice, humility, courage, and trust is the way that we must follow. Luke chapter 22 tells this crazy story once again, starring our guy Peter. Um, And I'll paraphrase paraphrase the story for us, but this is the night of the Last Supper, the the night before Jesus' betrayal. Just moments before, Christ has wrapped the towel around his waist and humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. They've just finished the Last Supper, where Christ established the Symbols of his body broken and his blood shed as eternal signs of our salvation. But Jesus begins telling the story, saying things are gonna heat up here. The next few days, the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years for you are gonna be hard. And he reminds of him, the, the disciples, he reminds them of the time that he sent them out. Remember, he sent them out and he said, don't take a staff, don't take your cloak, Don't take your wallet, just go, just you go and do my work so that they can be the beneficiaries of the hospitality of those that they're ministering to. But on this night, Jesus says, put on your cloak and pick up your staff and get your wallet. It's going to be hard. And then he says this confusing, crazy thing. He says, if you have a sword, you should get it. And if you don't have a sword, you should sell your cloak and get one. And he looks around. He says, do we have any swords? And they say, yeah, we have two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough. Right? Like, what's going on here? You know, fast forward a few hours later at the betrayal of Jesus. Judas kisses his cheek. And the centurions come in with drawn swords. And and Peter chimes in and he says, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And he didn't even wait for an answer. He strikes out at the slave of the high priest of all people. <laughs> at the slave of the high priest and he cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, no more of this. And he touched the ear and he healed it. You know, it's probably good that Peter was so bad with the sword. He, he was not aiming for the ear. He was trying to get the guy's head, right? <laughs> Luckily, he didn't do it. So why did Jesus arm his disciples just to disarm them a few hours later? Of course, um, so many of the events that happened during that final week, Were events that were prophesied years before. And many of the actions Jesus did were fulfilled through prophecy. The book of Isaiah reminds us that they would consider Jesus to be the leader of a rebellious mob. Our, our friend Brian Zond says it this way, Jesus did not arm his disciples so that they could fight. Jesus armed his disciples so that the prophecy would be fulfilled and that so he could disarm them. Jesus allowed those arresting him to falsely assume that he was a violent revolutionary, as the prophecy in Isaiah said. But when his disciples actually attempted to employ violence, Jesus said, no more of this. John 18, 36 says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. So often as disciples of Jesus, we try to live in both worlds. We try to have the cross in one hand and the sword in another often our priorities our methods our investments the way we spend our money and our time our bumper stickers represent the glory the way of glory the way of the sword rather than the cross you know maybe maybe that's hard maybe that's harsh you know, maybe we're just doing our best. But sometimes our misguided attempts to be faithful people show us to be walking with two hands, the way of the cross and the way of the sword. But Jesus upon the cross, we're reminded is the posture that we are to take as his followers. But don't get me wrong, the the, the cross was not a failure. I think we're tempted to think that, like the sword would have been the right way. The cross was not a failure. It was not simply the murder of an innocent man. Jesus on the cross was God's decisive victory over sin and death. Jesus and the Holy Spirit providing cleansing from sin once and for all from the monotonous sacrificial system offering atonement through animal sacrifice. Jesus taking the full brunt of the enemy's power of death and breaking it wide open through the resurrection. The cross was not a failure. The cross was the victory. The way of the cross is far from powerless. It chases after God's kingdom, actively working and subverting evil while consistently respecting all life. Defending the weak and healing what is broken in all creation. Come on, somebody. Andy would do that. Andy would say, come on, somebody. That's good preaching. (laughs) Circle that in your notes or write it down. The way of the cross is far from powerless. It chases after God's kingdom, actively working and subverting evil while consistently respecting life. Defending the weak and healing what is broken. The way of the cross defines life in terms of giving rather than receiving, self sacrifice rather than self protection, dying rather than killing. It reorients us away from our natural inclination toward a theology of glory by showing that we win when we lose. We triumph through defeat, and we become rich by giving ourselves away. The way of the cross is far from powerless. It chases after God's kingdom, actively working and subverting evil, consistently respecting all life, defending the weak, and healing what is broken in creation. So how does it work? How do we do better at being this way, at living this way, at allowing what Christ did through the cross and his call to take up our cross and follow him? How do we do that? Being a disciple is all about following your teacher so closely and with such focus that their words their way of saying things, their actions, their way of doing things become so imprinted upon our heart and our nature that our words, our actions, our way of explaining things, our way of doing things begin to mirror that of our teacher. David was telling me this morning that he... David, remind me of the discipline again. You just received your second degree black belt in what? In Taekwondo, that's awesome. Yeah. Even before David told me that story, I was already thinking of the Karate Kid. Any fans? The Karate Kid. Of course, we see uh, Daniel played by Ralph Macchio. Is that his name? He wants to be the best and he wants to overcome his enemies. And he seeks out a teacher and the teacher says, I'll teach you. Lesson number one, paint the fence. <laughs> Lesson number two, wax the car. You know, he had no idea. He, he was frustrated. He was mad. He's like, you're taking advantage of me. You're getting free labor out of me. And of course, the movie climaxes by showing that paint the fence became his moves, right? (laughs) Blocking through the wax. Anyway, um, this this is how it worked. This is how it worked for those children, those boys and girls growing up in the Jewish system. This is how it works for us today as we apprentice under someone. But specifically in Jesus' time, if you wanted to be a follower of God, you had to put in the work you went to Torah school as little boys and little girls. Five-year-olds are memorizing the first five books of the Bible, if you were a boy. you were memorizing the Torah. The girls were memorizing Proverbs and, and Psalms, the romantic scriptures. But as five-year-olds, you were memorizing it. And if you made the cut, you could go on. If you didn't make the cut, if you just, you know, it's not for everybody and that's fine you would go back to your family and begin learning the family trade. But if you made the cut, if you could memorize it all, and if you could defend it in front of the teachers, then you could go on. The boys, they would continue to memorize the entirety of the Jewish scripture. You know, the first two-thirds of your Bible. They would memorize it so that it was so ingrained, so imprinted upon their heart that it would change them. But not every, it wasn't for everybody, it's fine. You can go learn the family trade, right? But if you made the cut, then you could present yourself to a rabbi. These children, these teenagers would seek out a rabbi and say, rabbi, may I sit under you? And they would then begin the grilling of questions about the Torah, all kinds of questions about history, about how God was working, how God was moving. And you had to, you had to give your defense, you had to stand up. And it's because the teacher was trying to determine, can you, can you do it? Can you learn from me? Can you take my way of speaking, my way of doing things? Can you take that up and take that yoke upon yourself? Because that's how the system worked. You would follow your rabbi so closely that their words, their way of explaining things, their actions, their way of doing things would imprint upon you in such a way that you mirrored your teacher. They even had a way of saying this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. You know, of course, in the arid Middle East, that provocative way of saying it is, your rabbi is spending all day walking down the roads and everything that he's stepping in, are you close enough that that's getting on you? May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. There was a series of discipleship videos in the 90s. Anybody in the church in the 90s remember the NUMA videos? couple of nods. There's one called Dust. Look it up on YouTube. It it kind of puts some language that I'm using here today in really beautiful and dated 90s way. (laughs) Look it up. (laughs) May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Matthew chapter fourteen tells the story of Jesus and his disciples. After a day of teaching, Jesus uh sends his disciples ahead and he's gonna go pray. He puts them in a boat, sends them across the sea. And of course, you know, as happens in scripture, the storm kicks up, right? So the disciples are in the boat, the storm is going raging, they're getting nervous, and they see walking on the water a figure. And 11 of the 12 say, it's a ghost. Peter probably, I'm, I'm, per- I'm, I'm guessing. I think, I think Peter might have an idea. But of course, uh, the Lord calls out and says, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And here we go, our guy Peter. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and starts walking on the water, coming towards Jesus. Peter is walking on the water. But then of course he notices the wind and the waves and he starts getting distracted and he starts getting scared. And he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached him with his hand and caught him. And he says, Oh, Peter. You of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, we have to laugh at Peter. You know, what was he thinking? Right? Right? He was thinking, if Jesus can do it, I can do it. Because he had taken Jesus' yoke upon himself. I love that about Peter. The Lord called him out, and he walked on the water. That's what we have to remember. He walked on the water before he sank, right? Right? And as he sank, was he doubting Jesus? No, he was doubting himself. He was doubting himself. And here again, I think we can identify with Peter. When Jesus encourages us and calls us to do something hard, do we doubt him? Or do we doubt our own ability to do it? But just like the ragtag group of disciples, and some of you caught it as I was describing this, who were Jesus' disciples? Were they the top tier rabbi school kids who made it? They were fishing, right? If Jesus was walking down the beach and he sees fishermen, it means they didn't make the cut. But that's who he chose. So just like Jesus' ragtag group of disciples, he's called you by name. He's invited you to take his yoke upon yourself. He's invited you to model your words, your way of explaining things, your actions, your way of doing things after those of Christ. He doesn't doubt you. He invites you to be covered in his dust. He invites you to lay down your sword to take up your cross. So may you chase after God's kingdom, actively working and subverting evil while consistently respecting all life, defending the weak, and healing what is broken in creation. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, as we have uh, been challenged and inspired by you this morning, God, we admit that there are times that we have, maybe even through our best intentions, started chasing after ways that are not your ways, setting our minds on human things, not things divine and God for that we confess we humbly repent Lord may our ways be like your ways Lord give us strength give us endurance give us wisdom give us clarity as we learn from your life through scripture, and as we do the hard work of determining what that means for our daily actions, what that means for the relationship at work that's tense, what that means for how we raise our kids, what that means for how we engage in our civil activity through the way we vote, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time. God, may we be covered in the dust of our rabbi. We thank you for Jesus and for the cross. Amen.